0: I'm we'll start with a question. What does God think of you today? What does God think of you today? I ask that question very often when I meet with people and some of you may have heard me ask that question. I ask that question because I believe it cuts right to the heart of our faith. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, that by doing that, he earned the blessing of God, his Father, but then chose to take the curse of God for your sin on the cross in your place, if you believe that, then you are united to Jesus Christ by faith, and you have been declared righteous in God's sight. It also means that you have experienced the adoptive love of the Father, which we talked about two weeks ago. You are a son or a daughter of the King, the maker of the universe. And so, in a very real sense, you are today, this moment, loved. Perfectly loved by your Father in heaven. He's not just the Father of Jesus. He is in Christ. You you are loved. And we know that God's love is perfect and it is unfailing. It doesn't change. And so... If God has set His love on you, then you will never be condemned by Him. Never. You will not be able to sin your way out of God's love. But there is a misconception that comes with this. When I ask that question, what does God think of you today? There's often a tension in the answer. When I'm sitting with someone and we're talking and I ask that question, I can see it written on their face. And even for me, okay, if you were to ask me that question, there's a tension in how I seek to answer that question. I believe that I am forgiven. I believe that I am loved by God but I don't think God is always happy with me. He's not always delighted by my decisions. He's not always delighted by my actions, my choices. Now. That may be you. You may feel that tension. If I ask that question of you, what does God think of you today? Maybe you feel that God is a little disappointed with you today. And the misconception is that some people think that our salvation, our justification, our adoption means that God is never again disappointed with us that he always delights in us every day, no matter what we do. And that's not entirely true. There's a sense in which it's true. And I think that this whole question can actually be really confusing for Christians. It can be a stumbling block for us. How do we think about this? I mean, God does love us, like a perfect father loves his children, without partiality. He doesn't love some of us in this room more than others. It's not what we do that makes God love us. But God is certainly disappointed when we fail just as he is delighted when we are faithful. Now, parents, we understand this, right? If you have children or grandchildren, we understand this. We love our kids. Not perfectly the way God loves us, right? But we love our kids, and yet we don't always like the things they do. Their behavior sometimes drives us crazy. Now kids, to be fair, you love your parents. You don't always like the things your parents do either, okay? It's a two-way street. We are constantly disappointing each other and failing each other. That's, that's what it means to be a sinner. And sometimes, even though the people we love, we love them, right? But their behavior can drive us a little crazy. And I want to suggest to you, it's really no different with God, and I want to show you why. Okay, so we're back in Galatians 4 this morning. It's a long introduction. I apologize. Paul speaks directly to the Galatians. These people were Gentile converts, some non-Jewish converts to Christianity, and he has been saying to them, the Apostle's been telling them, you've been adopted into the family of God. And because you've been adopted into the family of God, you are not second-class Christians. Okay, So it's not Jewish Christians and then everybody else Christians. We're all part of the family. You're not second-class Christians. But they were acting like it. They were acting like it. And so for context, we're going to go back and read verse 7 again, and then we'll continue with the text. Okay, so Galatians 4, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul says this is who you are by God's grace. Through faith, by grace, through faith, this is our status in Christ. You're an heir, you're a son, you're a daughter, okay? Verse 8. Formerly, that is before you became a son, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So the Galatians before becoming christians they were pagans they worshiped false gods and this is who we all were before christ verse 9 but now that you have come to know god or rather to be known by god how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Now, this is the most important verse, okay, this morning. Notice how Paul flips the script on what it means to become a Christian. Now, we think that we become a Christian because we came to know God. We chose to believe in God. That's how we see it from our perspective. But Paul says... More accurately, God chose to know us. In John 15, Jesus reminded his disciples, they actually did not choose him, but he chose them and appointed them to go and bear fruit. That's John 15. In Matthew 7, Jesus says that on the last day, what will matter is not whether we think we know God because a lot of people will think they know God. Jesus says, no, that's not what matters. What matters is if God knows you. And so Paul is borrowing this idea, this choice of God to know us That's the basis of his argument here. He's saying if God initiated this relationship between you and him, how then is it possible for you to turn back into this old powerless way of thinking? Now he's talking here about, again, about the law. These Christians, this church, they have been listening to false teachers who are requiring them They're not just saying this is a good idea. They're requiring these people to take on Jewish rituals and customs as a point of salvation. Saying you're not real Christians until you do these things. For instance, verse 10, Paul says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. He's referring to all the Jewish festivals and holy days. He's saying, unless you do these things, right, that's what they're teaching, then you're not real Christians, right? And so he says, you're you're keeping all of this. Verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And so now you can see, we can see the extreme disappointment that Paul feels. It's right there. Paul taught them the gospel. Something that that they came to know by God's grace, not by works. And now they've started to believe that getting close to God is accomplished by ritualistic observance of ceremonial law. And that's, a, that's clearly a major step backwards. And so, yeah, Paul is disappointed in them. But so is God. So is God. This is not just Paul speaking. The Bible, we believe, is the inspired word of God. It's not just Paul disappointed with the church. God is disappointed with his church. And now the letter gets really, really personal. Verse 12. It says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. So Paul's saying, In order to become the apostle to the Gentiles, He chose to give up many of his Jewish habits in order to be received by them. He did that for the sake of the gospel so that non-Jewish people would see that Jesus is inviting them as well into the kingdom. And at that time, he says, when I first met you, I was well received by you. And so he's pleading with these brothers and sisters in Christ to... Return to that humble, receptive posture. Verse 13 says, You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as as Christ Jesus. We don't know the details um of the of this situation but it's clear that this church cared for Paul in a time of vulnerability in a time of sickness or disability they cared for him verse 15 what has become then of your blessedness for i testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me now, I it's a strange picture, right? That's actually a, that's an ancient figure of speech, something that they used at that time. Um, they would say that as a, as a way to say, someone's giving a great sacrifice. They would gouge out their eyes for you, okay? So he's saying, the church, this church, you showed me great love. You showed me great, great love. Verse 16, how then have I become your enemy? Or, sorry, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? What a great question that is. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Here's the thing. The popular message will always be the message that people want to hear. Right? the popular message will always be the message that that people want to hear, not necessarily the message they need to hear. And that is especially true in our our culture, our church culture today. Telling the truth will make you an enemy of the world. And even inside the church, a lot of we've figured out, we'll get more people if we don't say the whole truth. Because that's not what people want to hear. And Paul is, is saying this, right? I, I'm seeking to tell you the truth and you're making me out to be an enemy. Verse 17. Now talking about the real enemy, these false teachers, he says, they make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So who, who are they? These are the, the Judaizers, right? The, the teachers who are pushing the Gentiles, these new Christians, to adopt Jewish customs in order to be saved. And Paul sees through this smoke screen. right? He's saying these people, these men, they are motivated by self-glory, not the glory of Christ. This makes them more important. That's why they're doing this. Verse 18... It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I again am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You to notice that Paul uses the imagery of motherhood to describe his personal relationship with the church. He's already said that God is their father through adoption. But Paul then describes himself as the church's mother, anxious for her children and painfully laboring for. Their deliverance. You see that? And what does Paul say he wants for them? He says, I'm in anguish of childbirth until, until Christ is formed in you. Christ is formed in you. What does that, what does that mean? He's already taught them clearly that Christ dwells in them by his spirit, He's already said that they are united to Christ. They're already justified, right? They're already forgiven. They've already been declared righteous. They're already adopted into the family. So what's left? I mean, what then must it mean that Christ would be formed in them? I mean, they've already got all this. What's left? Well, he has to be talking about sanctification. That's what's left for the Christian. That's what the rest of our life in Christ looks like until we get to heaven. He's talking about us as the church growing in our knowledge of Christ and in the fruit of the Spirit, which he's going to talk about in chapter 5. But these Jewish teachers, they want to, to remake the Galatians in their own image for their own glory. That's the goal of their discipleship, of trying to get them to take on these customs, these rituals. However, Paul wants these people to become more like Jesus for the glory of God. And I think it's really important that we see this and that we consider how this might apply to us today or to our churches today because the reality is that many, many churches and many pastors are teaching and doing whatever they need to do to gain a following to gather the most people And in many cases, the only thing that could possibly be motivated by is self-glory. And I know this because I feel the same temptation. I'm part of this culture, right? And it's a powerful force. It's incredibly tempting to take advantage of people's desire for a better life. to take advantage of their desire for spiritual awakening, right? And to to build a ministry with my own brand at the center of it. And yet Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, Brothers, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for jesus sake and so this christ fellowship this must never be a church with me at the center of it this must be a church with jesus at the center this is not about me i want you to know christ and his word I want you to become more like Jesus. If you ever get the sense that I want something from you other than that, please run. <laughs> go somewhere else. Tell me why for my own sanctification, right? But, but, but go. Um, and then finally, I want to go back to that question that I asked in the beginning what does god think of you today what does god think of you today and i want you to think about that question it's a question that really digs into our sanctification it really digs into our growth as christians over time our sanctification is rooted in our justification, okay? What I mean by that is we begin the Christian life by grace, and we also continue to live it by grace, okay? Our path of holiness, our path of becoming more like Jesus, it is by grace from beginning to end. It's never not by grace. You know, I won't get very far in the Christian life. I won't become, I won't get very far in that walk if I start to believe at any point that God is accepting me on the basis of my own works. It's a very easy off-ramp. It's a very easy temptation for us to, to be led astray into thinking that, that I'm doing something that's making me more acceptable to God. That's, that's not the goal of our sanctification to think that. okay. God accepts me because of Jesus. If you're a child of God, if you're a son or daughter of the king, then God accepts you because of Jesus. Our sin was pardoned at the cross, past, present, and future, all of it. The perfect righteousness of Jesus has been credited to me. We receive the work of Jesus by faith, and now we can never be condemned. If God were to somehow in the future condemn me for sin that he's already paid for in Jesus, then that would make God unjust. So he can't do that. It's it's finished, Jesus says. And my growth and your growth as a Christian, our sanctification is rooted in all of that. It's very dangerous to separate those two ideas. But God can still be disappointed with me on a daily basis. I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, I'm His Son. But sometimes my behavior causes God anguish just as the Galatians were causing Paul anguish. And I believe it's very helpful for our sanctification to know this, okay? Christian, God is not happy with your sin. He's not happy with our sin. He's not ignoring it. It it pains Him. Our sin pains the one who was crucified because of our sin, right? In real time. Like, it pains God that we continue to fail. And rest assured, God is not going to let His children continue sinning without consequences. Again, parents, what good parent would do that, right? Is it love to let our kids do whatever they want to do without feeling consequences? Is that what we want for them? Of course not. Of course not. And when they do suffer, when they do fail, which we all do, we don't reject them, right? We receive them back in love. I hope that's how you handle it. (laughs) Please handle it that way. How does the Bible define love? 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this in verse 4. He says, love is patient and kind. He says a few other things, but I want you to focus on that. Love is patient and kind. But then in verse 6, he says this. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And there's that tension. There's the tension of God's love for us. Because when I ask the question, what does God think of us today? He's patient with you. He's patient with us. Far more patient than we deserve. He's faithful to the ones whom he has set his love on. He's not giving up on us. He's not going to separate himself from us. He's not going to cast us out. It's a love that's built on the firm foundation of Christ Jesus, his death and resurrection. So it's not going away, but God's love does not rejoice in our sin either. And neither should we. Neither should we. So what do we do? The answer is turn your eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace let's pray and ask god to help us become more like our savior let's pray gracious father We thank you for setting your love upon us. We know that it is eternal, that you are eternal and unchanging, perfectly faithful, perfectly patient, and kind. Our sin in Christ, past, present, and future is forgiven. We are accepted. We are loved. All of that is true. Father, I pray that your spirit would convict us of sin, not because we're in danger in Christ of losing our salvation, but because it was our sin that put him on the cross. And we want to be more like him by your grace. We want to be more like Christ. We want to honor him with our lives. Father, we confess to you, I confess to you, I do a pretty terrible job of that in most days. And I'm so grateful that you continue to love me in spite of my sin. Father, would you turn our face towards Jesus that we would stop loving the things of this world so much and love you more. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.